Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 74 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. Um, we are, have a, a, we've had a wild ride this week. It is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. The markets are, we've had some serious, serious down days um, in the stock market. Um, a lot of volatility all over the place. Oil has sort of set, stayed steady in all of this, which is very interesting. Um, but again, episode 74 of the Petronauts podcast, it is March 9th, 2023. And if you haven't been following the news and the stock market, there's a lot going on. Um, this podcast is going to be very geopolitical heavy and very geofocused. So I'm going to try to keep this intro short. Um, the reason when you don't hear from me in a long time or they're, they're sporadic podcasts is because I have big deliverables going on and um, and I'm really passionate about doing this um, but and trying to keep this uh, independent as, as much as possible. So I'm going to cram in some intel into this podcast, but the actual podcast that you're going to hear um, and bear with the, the audio, it's a little off, but um, it is a geopolitical heavy podcast focused. Um, it was I spent all of last week basically at the Colorado School of Mines. It was a really, really fun week. Um, on February 28th, on last week, I uh, gave a lecture to uh, the students um, as part of the, I was invited by Morgan Bazillion with the Paint Institute um, and gave a lecture to students and a lot of people uh, logged in online as well on everything going on sort of in the world and really focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. Um, talked about the energy transition and everything. So I think you guys will We'll really enjoy it. Some of it's a refresher, and then some of it's a lot of new stuff coming in on the Russia-China side. So uh, definitely everything is uh, completely updated. And then I will be addressing this in another podcast, talking about natural gas specifically. But I attended the Responsible Gas Symposium last week at the Colorado School of Mines as well. And I have to say, I was incredibly shocked. Um, shocked by sort of what I heard and the tone and, and sort of how everyone was was speaking. Because it was um, I was expecting it to be pretty... Um, pretty green and pretty energy transition heavy, um, but I wasn't quite expecting the um, the lack of real depth and understanding of how the markets work um, and and the realities that are just sort of on the ground for folks. Um, and so the the event was great. The people were great. It's all Chatham House rules. So when I discuss it with you guys in another podcast, I will not be giving people attribution, but I can tell you that there were, um, you know, operators in the room and there were policymakers and, you know, wide range of folks that attended and, um, and were there. And what, what was talked about and heard at least on, in the first day of the, of the event and, uh, um, and on, on panels was about the change in, in legislation in Colorado and SB 181, which was the big bill that changed um, oil and gas regulations in Colorado. And it was extremely positive tones that everyone's talking about how great it was and how how the movement that Colorado was doing on on. on everything on the natural gas side of measuring uh, the methane for natural gas and how we're sort of leading leading the charge and all of this. And it really sort of missed the mark to me and really appreciating that Colorado has dropped in production considerably from 6 BCF a day to 4 BCF a day, um, oil production from 600,000 BCF a day to 400,000 BCF a day, um, and that Colorado is not leading and from an activity standpoint um, and has had you know incredible consolidation in the space because nobody can get a permit because of those regulations. So I'll be talking about a lot of that um, and really my sort of perspectives of 
what's going on with these fo this focus on the energy transition because it's pretty mind-boggling. Um, so I'll be recapping that. So this uh, this talk and presentation was a couple days before that, also at the Colorado School of Mines, um, and very geo-heavy. So we'll, le we'll leave that there. Um, now, what's happened today in the last few days, so this week, and what we'll talk about in this in this introduction, um, is really, so today, uh, the, the headlines are marked. I mean, there's a few things that, big things that happened this week, and that's the Fed, that's Jerome Powell testifying on the Hill, which he does every so often. Um, and uh, then today, or you have the National People's Congress. I know it gets very confusing. There's the National Party Congress and everything. But this is China's National People's Con Con Conference and Congress, and they've got another meeting that's on the back of this. So it's basically a couple weeks of, of meetings. And a lot of stuff has happened within those meetings. And I went through you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of words in those documents which again will be another podcast, but I'll give you a little brief on that. So there's a lot going on there. And then today, what we had was um, SVB, which is the, I believe is the San Francisco uh, Venture Capital Bank, um, came out and said, uh, I mean, their stock tanked. So basically they're trying to raise money um, because uh, on the back of, of poor, uh, of losing money on their bonds. So um, we had Peter Thiel come out and say that he is actually asking people to, you know, advising people to pull funds or pull money. And we're hearing other fund advisors advising the same thing as pulling money. So if you're, if you just Google SVB, this is what you're going to see. And, and uh, quick apologies, one uh, clarification, sorry, it's Silicon Valley Bank. My apologies, lots of things going in my head. Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, sorry, not San Francisco Venture. So it is venture capital, uh, everything going in San Francisco, but we're talking Silicon Valley Bank, which actually makes a lot of sense because that exposed to all the tech side. And the real you know, thing to bring up with this is that you probably heard yesterday the stuff on Silvergate, and Silvergate has a lot of exposure to crypto and was sort of, you know, in the exchange business with crypto, and basically they said they're shutting down. Now, the interesting thing with crypto is that um, we hadn't seen a whole lot of contagion. I, I, you know, like, contagion is, you know, when something happens and it spreads into other parts of the economy. Like when, you know, we had Bear Stearns, but then we had nothing, at, you know, things were happening, but then Lehman Brothers collapsed, and then we had the collapse of everything um, in 2008. So, we, we've seen a lot of this crypto pain and everything. We've seen crypto prices decline, but we haven't seen massive contagion. And that tells you a couple things about crypto is that it wasn't completely systemic, right? Crypto, because it's not actively used on a day-to-day -day basis to buy stuff, it wasn't completely intrinsic without the economy, despite what many people want to say. Now, I do think all the money, the difference with a thing like SVB is that this bank is largely exposed to this venture capital. So I've talked about, you know, for years on this podcast, the tech side. Um, and, you know, like Kathy Wood, you, you cannot be investing in tech all the time. Now, there's been a bump this year for sure, but tech has a lot of exposure. Green tech actually has a you know risk and exposure, to, especially to high interest rates. And so um, green tech especially is really, really exposed to higher interest rates. Any tech is exposed to higher interest rates because it needs lower interest rates to work. And it's something interesting is that lots of folks in the shale space understand this. When operators cannot get money, they can't make this work, you know, when they can't borrow. Well, lots of folks are making enough money from their operations because high oil prices. So that's not being really talked about. Sure. I'm sure folks, some folks will need it, but in the tech world and in the, in the green tech world, you need a ton of money and you need cheap finance capital. You need cheap capital to do this. And that's gone with the, the role, the, 
where we have higher interest rates and we still have high inflation. So that's a huge problem. And there, there's a couple things already, you know, from a tech standpoint um, and, and green tech, which kind of gets folded in together that's impacting is the high cost of everything. So the high cost of the actual, you know, components involved and the rising metal costs and mineral costs and everything, but also and rising labor costs um, and then also the cost of capital. So something like SVB is a little different because it's this venture capital that they were, you know, that they were supporting and it has a lot of exposure. So that, you know, is a little bit more tricky in terms of um, what is the kind of sy systemic risk and exposure. Um, now, I'm not saying I'm not calling for the market to collapse based upon this, but you've had you had a lot of folks come out in the stock market on, on Bloomberg and CNBC and everyone say, hey, you know, some people say this could be a bigger deal than people think. And you had other people say, hey, our banks, and we've heard this a lot, right? Our banks are well capitalized since 2008. We don't have a big issue with these big banks. Well, that's big banks, but the smaller banks are things that people are getting a little more concerned about is what is the risk and contagion with that? And what is the exposure of these smaller banks? So we start out, we, you know, any, any risk or these known unknowns or black swans, they, they can happen this way. So we are definitely seeing things like um, in, if you're looking at yields and I talk about the, the 10 year yield, cause that, that is your um, correlates really well to the 30 year mortgage rates. And we've seen that sort of hover around just under 4% and actually went above 4%. And um, we saw, we've seen mortgage rates, the three-year mortgages above, uh, now above uh, 7% again. So, and we see the two-year yield, um, we, we had saw, seen that well north of 4%. So that there's an inversion between the two-year yield and the 10-year yield. And we haven't seen levels like that since basically 2007. So, um, and actually I think it was the eighties as well, um, with this recent inversion. So what it's telling us is that we're sort of, we, we haven't seen these data points and, uh, for a long time that, that were, you know, the predecessors to crises. Um, and so there's some serious things going on there. So I just caution folks on, um, I, there's not enough information yet on the SVB stuff. Caution folks that the Asian market is open right now it is not responding well to that. Um, um, and there are, folks getting a little more concerned about the banking side. So that's something to be just holding in your back pocket and think about. And it's meaningful because this is related to the Fed, right? This is stuff that is directly related to the Fed and does impact oil prices. So I know that there's been a lot of optimism, I'd say not unwarranted optimism, but sort of this, uh, you know, health of oil prices. I think, you know, Sierra Week was going on this past week and there was a lot of, at least from what I heard and, and people attending and what was on the market and everything was that, hey, you know, we're gearing ourselves up for much higher oil prices in the future. I, I heard energy aspects and Amrita Sen and several others talking about well north of $100 oil prices in the second half of the year. Now, that can be true. That that could happen. I don't think that's going to be based upon demand. Um, dem you know, these these risks to the market and things that we're seeing with the consumer, um, even in Asia, right? I mean, the reason prices rebounded, oil prices rebounded and and you know, cut some of their losses at the beginning of this year is really about the China open and China lifting off the band-aid for zero COVID. And there's a couple things happening in the China space, and I'll get back to the Fed and oil price in a second, that's really, really serious, is that one, the data points are coming out that it has not been that good, that we haven't seen the economic data points for January and February were not that good, um, which is a little interesting. It means that that um, they're slower to the uptake. Um, yes, the consumer is going to be spending, but in terms of driving oil demand, we probably need to be a little bit careful about that. There could, There's probably some serious risks there, there is serious risks within the Chinese economy. You um, and you just can't blanket it over with spending every time. Um, and so we and then secondly, what's going on with these meetings and what's going on with all these speeches and what's going on within China right now is a reiteration and a repush to revamp and reform the economy in in Xi Jinping's favor in control. So they are revamping the uh, the financial sector the, in the banking sector. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of concerns with that um, of uh, it, 
important financial maker people going missing already. Um, but that's happening. So that there's a documentation on that that they're looking to revamp. And then yesterday they they announced uh, <clears throat> Excel, the ability to basically enact emergency laws in the event, so to quickly enact them immediately so that you would you could change laws very, very quickly in the event of an emergency. So what that was is sort of foreshadowing or, or um, is in the case of an event with Taiwan that they can immediately, immediately change these laws. Now this is China we're talking about. So um, you know it's, it's, that's sort of a technicality because they may do this stuff anyway. But there is a lot of talk on, on you know, the rhetoric has definitely been stronger. We've heard Xi Jinping and others talk directly about um, the U U the United States um, and encircling of China and all that stuff. So that those tensions, which is something I talked about on this podcast as well, are really ramping up. Those are not going away. You're seeing Xi Jinping and China really address more control on the on the Chinese economy. And I think folks really have to appreciate what does that mean for oil? So what does that mean for the price of oil, for the price of energy? Is that good for it? Now, we, you can argue that the long-term geopolitical tension, certainly with Russia and Ukraine and this ongoing war and potential um, you know, kinetic war with, with China or Taiwan or anything going on there, that that would be... Uh, you know, that would push oil prices up. But the impact of the economy is bad, no matter what. Um, and there's nothing good uh, in, the, in the global economy that we can see right now to really help prop up demand for oil prices. So I think we just need to be a little bit cautious with that. Now, if we think back to what the, on the Fed side and, you know, look, when you have a, a higher dollar, you have an inverse correlation with, with oil prices. So, you know, your dollar and, your, and oil prices have an inverse correlation. And the Fed, um, his the, Jerome Powell's testimony and talk the first day he gave it earlier this week, I didn't listen to the second one, but I listened to the first one. Um, it, it's pretty nauseating listening to the congressional stuff and all the, they ask questions, but those questions are really just um, them just talking and having a, a political standing point um, and probably pretty annoying for Jerome Powell. Um, but so Jerome Powell, it was interpreted as what he said on the first day is very hawkish, given that he said they may have to increase rates. They may have to increase rates more than expected. Um, lots of folks are indicating that the dot plot or those higher, the, the rates where they think they're going to be are going to be higher than expected. Um, and so essentially the takeaway from, from Jerome Powell and other Fed officials is that Rates could be higher than expected. Rates could raise, they could raise fa rates faster than expected, and they could keep rates, they're going to keep rates higher um, for longer. Um, and so that's something that's been reiterated. Now, literally the next day, and so that, that, that had a huge impact on the stock market, and we saw a massive sell off. Um, and so, that's positive. If you if you have cash and you have savings and you're wanting to um, you're wanting to get some yield on your actual savings, the uh, it, not not good for equities. And so there was a massive sell-off. Then the next day, uh, we see Jerome Powell's you know getting a little more dovish apparently and and trying to to, to quell that and saying, well, we're going to be data dependent. We're going to look at the data. So there's jobs data that's coming out tomorrow, and then we'll see the inflation data. The problem that's not what the Fed is supposed to do. It is kind of amazing to me, and I would say he's getting a massive of D plus, if not F in this category of, look, your, your job as the Fed is to talk to the market and, and explain what's going on and to drive it without even necessarily doing anything and without necessarily changing policy. And he's done a horrible job of that. Your job is to not react to one day market swings. And you, you the fact that, that he's concerned about a one day market swing, but was not concerned about inflation all of 2021 is just nauseating. Um, it, it's, it's as nauseating as some of the stuff going the energy transition stuff, but it's incredible that over the course of 2021, we had incredible inflation. We had massive fiscal spending and now we are looking to curb this inflation and we're, we're raising interest rates but we're gonna we're gonna nuance on a, a from one day to the next depending
depending on how the stock market performs. Look, you either have inflation or you don't. And, and I know it's really hard for people to appreciate, but this level of inflation, you have to raise interest rates to curb it. And he, Jerome Powell did say, we have, um, you know, we are effective, but we're blunt. And so it's it's a pretty blunt tool. You have to raise rates and you're going to impact the economy. And folks don't think the economy is going to be impacted, but it's going to be. And you can look at every previous situation where we've had high inflation and high interest rates, you will have higher unemployment. It's going to happen. Um, and so that's, you look at the 80s and look what happened in, in the 70s and 80s and the higher unemployment. So unemployment is going to rise. And that's the other thing that people are getting a little bit more concerned about when we start seeing the stuff on the banking side is that what's the next shoe to drop? Um, and the next shoe to drop is really people are starting to talk about it is the consumer. And so the consumer has been maintained and healthy and spending, but a lot of that spending now, as we can see from the credit card debt, is on credit cards. And your average credit card interest payment right now is 20%. That is a massive, massive figure. So that is going to start impacting. So we're seeing some, some fragility within the system. And I think people need to be really, really cautious about, honestly, what that ultimately means for oil demand and ultimately means for oil prices. And that's really hard and nuanced. And it's why I have a job and work in this is because you have to set that against the backdrop of everything going on on the geopolitical side and, and the push pull that's going on for oil prices. Obviously, we've drained the SPR. There's a lot of factors there that could keep oil prices elevated. I certainly don't see oil prices crashing, but none of this is positive for the health of the, the, the U.S. and global economy. So with that, I'm going to close and leave it for you guys to listen to this um, this podcast. I really hope you like it. And um, I will be talking to you soon, folks. I We will be doing a, a, a very China-focused podcast. I will um, be having the CEO of Deep Well Services, Mark Marmo, on the podcast. I'm looking to have um, the, my uh, my an MP, a former member of parliament, John Grogan, who I actually interned for years ago, um, my, my intern, my political internship, he's going to be on the podcast. Um, we're going to be talking about UK energy policy, inflation, everything and the economy. Um, and I'm also, we're also going to be, I am going to recap that, uh, responsible gas symposium, obviously keeping it to Chatham house rules and talking about really what's the state of, um, the, the, a lack of understanding sort of with the energy transition and this push toward toward it, even though it's not resulting in lower CO2 emissions. So thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it and talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, you, you, you got free food, which is, yeah. <laughs> um, I think you'll really like this. Uh, Trisha is just superb on the topics of oil and gas markets, regulation, politics, geopolitics. Uh, you can see her title here. She's the president and CEO of something called Petro Nerds, which I, I would look at. She's an extraordinarily well-connected uh, in this uh, industry and as a terrific analyst as well as thinker on these subjects. So I'm really glad you could be here. I'm grateful for it. And uh, the floor is yours. And then we'll do Q&A. A lot of you are students probably in this area. You'll want to uh, get some real, I think, transparent, open and honest and direct answers from Tricia, which you won't get from everybody else, I can assure you. So um, I would I would, I would, would use that opportunity. So Tricia, the floor is yours. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for being here. It is a pleasure to be at School Minds. As you can see, my uh, the name of my company is PetroNerds. So if I don't fit in here, I'm probably in trouble. Um, so, uh, and I, I grew up um, in Northwest Colorado, Southwest Wyoming. I grew up around pump jacks um, and went third generation oil and gas. My dad pumped oil wells, my grandfather pumped oil wells, and I was first generation to go to college. 
uh, went to London School of Economics and um, really, really wanted to work in energy, particularly in oil. And um, worked at a nonprofit in DC for a while doing energy and politics. And then I started my own business and came back to Colorado um, doing customer. So I consult and I advise. I work with companies in and outside the oil and gas industry, a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, a lot of engineers, and I help folks understand what's going on in the world. So what you see today, I'm focusing this on geopolitics and energy, but we can touch a myriad of things. I um, have a lot to cover and I will speak really fast um, and I'll probably go way over my time, um, but that's okay. So I, if I get to the end of like the US economy, if I don't get to that, it's fine. We can just cut that, um, but we will dive in right now. And uh, please, please think of the hard questions and definitely ask them. Uh, don't be shy because I'm certainly not. Um, so right now we do have a very unprecedented situation. Um, we have, we, we've really never been here in terms of the geopolitical sphere, um, particularly with energy, but also with, with everything else. So, and there's nothing energy ties into uh, energy security, national security, economic security is sort of everything into the, into the world. So it's very interrelated when we talk about geopolitics. But we have these very significant tensions with China. Um, I cover China on a very deep and intimate level, um, but if you haven't followed it lately, if, you, if you're following the Russian war in Ukraine, Chinese stuff's getting brought up more and more. I've been talking about this for well over a year that China's funding this war. And sometimes I'd get people to go, oh, that's a little scary. And now it's completely out there. So it is real. Uh, whether China was funding it directly, which it doesn't matter if they say they are or they aren't because China's not transparent about much. But the reality is that China tensions that we have with the US are really serious um, with Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan and lots of folks on our security side talking, asking China not to fund um, not to fund this war in Ukraine, but actually not to fund ammunitions. We will get into that in just a second, but we have some serious issues with regards to war fatigue. Uh, we're one year into this war. This is a, you know, very, I mean, ammunition is a serious part of this war of we are draining Russia of ammunitions, but we are also being drained of ammunitions in the U.S. We're supplying a lot of money to Ukraine. Um, and now if China was to step in and supply weapons, um, that would be a huge game changer in this war. Um, because everybody's needing ammunition. So that's very significant. And it's why we've sort of hearing this being talked about. So we have that going on. So we have an ongoing war um, with, these China, with these tensions that already exist with geopolit geopolitically. We have inflation. Um, we haven't you know, historically had a high inflation, definitely not double digits, even high single digits. And we have high interest rates. Um, that means everything costs more to get your ability to borrow. So, you know, it's high interest rates impact the oil and gas industry, but they also really, really impact things like tech because people need money to borrow. Um, they also really impact all the things that people talk about, this so-called energy transition, the renewables, the wind and solar and batteries. Interest rates really, really, really impact those. They were expensive to begin with. They were profitable to begin with. And now they're um, even more expensive um, and less profitable. High fertilizer and food, we have high oil prices as well, or pretty high, you know, 70s, high 70s is pretty high oil prices. Gas prices are down, but we have sustained high oil prices, obviously because of the geopolitical situation. We have high fertilizer and food costs. This cannot be underscored enough. High fertilizer prices, now that's multiple components with this war in Ukraine, but a big component of that, of that is natural gas prices. And um, when you have high food crop costs, so they're kind of cyclical, they, they hit each other and go round and round. One issue with food costs is just inflation. We led the world in inflation, particularly in food inflation. 
in the U.S. because we did things like big, big programs. We increased the food stamp program. We've had massive um, entitlement programs that were increased. We spent hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars in the U.S. in the first couple of years of this administration, and it has led to inflation. Um, in the, so that started sort of in the U.S. Now, globally, we started seeing food inflation when Russia and Ukraine um, were getting into war and we, we weren't exporting enough grain out of Russia or Ukraine. And then add on to that, we have this very high natural gas prices and there's potash, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into fertilizer that's also not being exported, not just natural gas, but the price of fertilizer goes up. And all these countries that need this fertilizer to plant their crops, like in Africa, like in the Middle East, can't get the fertilizer. So they start, they don't plant the crops, they have low crop yields, and now we have a nice, increasingly cyclical problem with high food prices and um, fertilizer and low crop yields. That is a story that's not going away today. Uh, France and Spain just came out with their inflationary figures. They were hotter than expected, and a big component of that was, was uh, high food costs. Um, this global economy really reeling from this massive stimulus. So it can't be underscored enough when you have $27 trillion of global economic stimulus. That's both fiscal and monetary. So that's government spending across the world and, um, and central banks putting money into the economy. And so you have this massively... Oh, you know, constrained labor market. There's not a country you can go to in this world that people say, we just can't get people back to work. We just have a tight labor market. And that tight labor market has got people really, really confused about the health of the economy. The economy is not healthy, but people are very confused about that because they say, oh my gosh, well, we can't get a worker to, to fill this position. Well, that position is a certain likely a service sector position and people don't want to fill it. And we have serious fiscal lacks when um, students have not had to pay off student debt for three years. That's hundreds of billions of dollars that has not had to be paid back. That means all those students with all that student debt are spending money on other things. And that other thing spending is inflationary. Um, so it's a really big deal. And I'll show you in a bit. The credit card debt is going up and the, big, the delinquencies are in a lower end, are in a category of younger people. So even though they're not paying off the student debt, they're putting money, they're putting debt in credit cards and they're not paying off those credit cards. Big problem. Um, so we're going to switch gears here. So that just keep that in the back of your mind. This is a bit of the introduction. Now, natural gas production, consumption, U.S.'s role in, in sort of solving this energy crisis and providing energy security. Natural gas is huge. The U.S. is producing 122 billion cubic feet per day out of a 400 billion cubic feet per day market. We are the largest oil and natural gas producer in the world by a large margin. Um, indisputable, just hands down. And that natural gas that we produce is also the, the natural gas is it's sort of the problem in this crux of this Ukrainian war issue, the ability for Russia to just turn off the tap. It's a serious issue for, for Europe because they allowed themselves to be completely exposed largely to one, uh, one player. But our production, which I'll show you shortly, is um, we have a vast amount of production. We have the ability to solve this crisis. Um, however, we are limited by our export capacity. From uh, We have LNG export capacity. We need to build pipelines. So energy security is a really, really serious thing. And all this gets impacted when people are really talking about the energy transition. They're pushing this and they're very anti-domestic oil and gas production or they're just anti, um, I don't call them fossil fuels. I call them traditional fuels. It's crude oil, it's natural gas, and it's coal. Um, I think fossil fuels have a very negative connotation and there's um, crude oil, natural gas, and coal have very positive connotations, especially for people's health and well-being. 
Um, so we will get into what our, you know, our production, our role is in this. And then um, we will actually be spending time on China and this sort of ESG push and then really understanding what the energy transition is, why it's not actually happening. Um, I know that's controversial and that's hard. You're welcome to push back at me. Um, but it's, it's really serious. And I think it's something students really need to understand. And then if we have time, we'll talk about uh, the health of the US, the health of the US economy and what that what's going on in the US. Um, so what is the Petronard? That's me um, that's sitting on some tank batteries several years ago. My dad was pumping some wells. Um, that's one of the uh, power plants. That's the Hayden power plant in Northwest Colorado. That's being one of the many that's being shut down. Um, when we go through the data on coal-fired power plants in China, some data was just released. You realize that this does make me very upset that we are working really, really hard to shut down coal-fired power generation left, right, and center in the U.S. And it is all for naught because CO2 emissions do not have boundaries, which means that if we're shutting them down and we're losing jobs and we're losing energy security and we're losing the ability to actually turn our lights on in an independent way um, without reliable backup, um, and you can also produce stuff with coal. You can produce different things with coal and gas than you can, say, with, with uh, wind and solar. And we can talk about why wind and solar are pretty inefficient forms of energy anyway. Um, but that's a very, very serious thing to think about in the context of the US more broadly. If we're working really aggressively hard to shut down coal-fired power plants and also gas-fired power plants, we are reducing our ability to adequately turn our lights on and adequately produce stuff. And this production stuff is really important because given that we are draining our ammunition supply in the US, we have to reproduce this stuff. The fact that we are giving this all to Ukraine right now just so happens it's about, um, it's a lovely $700 billion figure. So Ukraine's going to need $700 billion to reconstruct, they think. We've already spent about more than $50 billion in Ukraine right now. Um, so they're going to need a lot more money. We also spend about $700 billion or $2 trillion on our, uh, on our defense budget yearly. And our interest payments, because now we have high interest rates, on just our debt in the U.S. is also $700 billion this year. So um, um, that's the best for this podcast. If you have not listened to it, you absolutely need to tune in. Um, it's well worth a listen. I believe there's actually some classics here that are require it as listening for their students. Um, so the market hype, just to get you up to speed on what's driving oil prices up as of late, um, and stuff to pay attention to, um, Chinese crude oil imports, basically the, you know, China ripped the Band-Aid off their zero COVID policy, and that was one of the single biggest drivers in oil prices going, you know, maintaining their elevated levels over the last month or so. So a lot of positivity on, on the Chinese stock market and everybody getting all excited about what's going on within China. Um, and yet nothing has changed on the political front, on the government front within China. It is extremely serious. So all this stuff I'm talking about, tensions with the U.S., very, very serious. But what's going on internally within China, also really, really serious. Um, just today, there was an announcement that a big overhaul of government agencies. I don't know how much you can really overhaul existing government agencies in China, given everything is run um, by the, the Communist Party. But the fact that they're even doing this means that uh, Xi Jinping wants even more control and exerting more control. So that's pretty serious in and of itself. Um, their foreign direct investment has dropped to 18-year uh, lows just in the past, in the second half of 2022. So all the positive stuff you may hear in the stock market about what's going on in China it's really not that positive. It's a lot of people making bets. If you hear Goldman Sachs or other companies saying that, that's because they have large wealth management offices in China and they do want to sell gold. Um, so that's just something to keep in your back of your mind. So the, the serious issue from a regulatory standpoint that we have, um, Colorado is a, is a fantastic state to look at in terms of, we produce oil and natural gas. Um, 
we are constrained in producing oil and natural gas because we're not giving a lot of permits out and we do have a pretty tight regulatory environment and we have a, lot, a very large anti-oil and gas movement that's been going on for a long time in Colorado. But within the U.S. overall, um, and it, it, it's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about this, not uncomfortable for me because I would do it with any administration, but sure as hell this one, um, because this is the most anti-domestic oil and gas production um, administration we've ever had in the U.S., ever. Um, so when we are the largest oil and gas producer in the world, and we have the ability to help countries and change the game, and this is a part of our national security, part of our energy security, really, really serious when you have a government, an administration that doesn't like that production and talks about that vocally. It's, it's very hard for, for markets and people to understand what's going on. So you have a lot of people leaning into this energy transition, trying to invest in renewables at the same time, seeing the oil prices are high and knowing that we're going to need oil, oil for a long time. And it gets really, really confusing for folks. And I hear students all the time saying, well, we're just not going to, I'm not going to have a job in five years and or 10 years or 15 years. You absolutely will have a job as a petroleum engineer in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, but it gets confusing and we have lost, you can see at this school, this program and petroleum engineer programs across the world have lost students because of this stuff. Um, so the State of the Union address, I won't go through this in length, you can let's do this on previous podcasts, um, but we had the President of the United States say that, um, making comments about oil and gas production, and he said that, you know, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And he clarified this when everyone was, you know, fooling him and he said, oh, and maybe longer or, or, or beyond that. But this, this comment of we'll need oil for at least another decade, you can't invest in that. That's like me saying, well, we'll need solar for at least a decade or we're going to need hats for a decade. You, that's not how businesses work. And I spend a lot of time doing very long term strategy analysis with governments and also spend time with businesses. And businesses need a stable regulatory environment. They need stability and predictability, and they need runway. No business is going to do very well if you say, well, you have 10 years, so make it work in that 10 years. And production, oil and gas production, and the massive capital investments that you need just won't work in that. So it's a kind of an impossible situation that this administration has put um, the business into. Now, permit approvals, we have seen this is federal land in the U.S. So Bureau of Land Management, BLM, Bureau of Land Management, you can see that um, and I just put this so you can understand, this is, you know, the previous administration for federal permit approvals. This is like most administrations. It's, we haven't really, you know, under the Obama administration, they talked a big game, but they didn't do a whole lot in terms of actually restricting output. Um, they started regulatory stuff, but the Biden administration is actually clamped down on permit approvals. And if you have an existing permit and you want to just get it for, up for reapproval, we've never in history of the U.S. had a problem with that. It would just, you'd apply and you'd get that permit reapproved. This administration is not reapproving any federal permits. So if you turn on CNN or any other TVs, which I do not watch any of these, Fox or CNN, but I'm told if you turn on CNN and hear, oh my gosh, we have 9,000 permits. Why don't they just drill those 9,000 permits? That's not exactly how oil and gas works, particularly if you're in engineering, you should be getting into that of understanding the reservoir and the rock and geology. You have to really study this. And just because you have the permits doesn't mean you want to drill it. I've worked with four operators and with operators, definitely not how it works. Um, and you may just choose not to drill it because it's not favorable at that time. Um, we've also drained our strategic petroleum reserves. And this is a really serious issue for kind of looking down the road, especially this year, if we have continued to increase tensions and volatility and war, which clearly we do, and it's not going away anytime soon, we're banking on higher oil prices. We have drained the strategic petroleum reserve more than any president in US history, more than any administration. And it's, it's sort of really setting us up for a big problem because the administration has come out and said, well, we will we'll fill it up if prices get to a certain range. Well, so now we've sort of, you know, 
capped oil or put a floor on oil prices. But at the same time, if prices don't go to that range, then what are we not going to fill it up? And that's a big problem because we're lo we've lost, you know, we went from about over 30 days of supply of demand because we demand about 20 million barrels a day to now less than 20. And we're continually draining this a little bit. The, the most recent release, I think the administration didn't actually want to do it, but they were sort of held by it. Um, but the point is, is that one, it was kind of, it's been used as a piggy bank in previous administrations, absolutely. Um, but this level that we're down to 1980 levels, we're really putting ourselves in a very, a very, very unique position, sort of guaranteeing ourselves um, some higher oil prices and some serious risk. Because if we have high prices this year, guess what? The administration is not going to be able to drain into this. The pushback will be massive to say, oh, you're going to do another massive release because that will put us in a very, very bad position. And they do need to be going to the operators and saying, hey, um, we need you to produce and we need to fill up this storm reserve. Now, looking at prices and the economy, um, this is just monthly oil prices, natural gas and, and, and crude oil. I, I put this in a box here so you can understand um, 2007, 2008, you guys are a little younger for this. I don't know if you remember the Great Recession. It was really, really bad um, because but that crash, you know, the spike in oil prices and then the housing crash and everything. I was looking for a job in 2010. I couldn't find a job in 2010. I applied for like 300, maybe 400 jobs. I got one well, couple phone call interviews and one actual interview. I mean, it was a true recession, but that didn't happen until actually 2010, the real unemployment. And the, everything started sort of 2008. The point to make here is that high oil and natural gas prices um, are never usually a good thing, that high tip debt. They can be, we're in a really, really unique place now where we had high gas, natural gas prices this year, or it, I'm sorry, over the course of 2022, which you can see over the entire shale revolution, we've never really had high natural gas prices. We had north of $6 in MCF, basically $6.50 uh, MCF for natural gas last year. That did some serious things to natural gas, including driving up production like crazy. Um, and that's why we have low natural gas prices now. Um, that uh, crude oil prices are, right now we have a non-precedented situation where we're likely gonna have high crude oil prices, low, potentially low natural gas prices, um, and a pretty soft to sluggish to recessionary economy. And that's a really, really unique spot to be in. And the market is not appreciating this at all. Um, so we're hanging around $77 for WTI, um, 83 and change for Brent. Um, I sort of live in, I mean, lots of people can live and die by this. Just something to point out, which I do this in all presentations, but the contracted volume for WTI is really, really sluggish. Um, so WTI is not quite reflecting what's going on with market um, and the contracted volumes are serious to pay attention to. Uh, natural gas is just nosedived, absolutely off the cliff. Um, I can't tell you how many people, how many phone calls I've had lately about why do we have low natural gas prices? And this is a topic of discussion of, you know, how come natural gas prices are so low? Same, it was almost the, the this rapidity of this question I get is almost just like about a six months and a year ago of like, why are people not going back to work? Um, this, uh, the high natural gas prices, which we'll show you in a second, is largely from high natural gas production. Um, and the fact that we've had a very unseasonably warm winter, we had less heating days this winter in the US, We've had less heating days in Europe, and that has really saved Europe. So weather saved Europe this winter, um, and Europe was able to, while the, Russian, while the Russian gas was still flowing in pipelines, they stockpiled that, and then they took a ton of, a massive amount of liquefied natural gas from the U.S., and they stockpiled that as well, and they haven't had it needed. This story is not going away. Do not expect global natural gas prices to stay this low, because they won't. Um, but we spiked. We hit 100 bucks, uh, that's TTF, that's 100 bucks in 
have a VTU um, you know, August. And then we came, we came back cratering down. And we hit 10 bucks in MCF in the US, which we've never had the high gas prices. Gas is not sexy, it's not appealing. We have so much gas and so, so much gas in the US. And we had these high prices, boy, um, it was easy to get it. Gas is a smaller molecule. As you guys know, as engineers, you can get the stuff out of the ground pretty damn easy. Um, and we know how to do it. So we're producing. And I put this here because I think it's really interesting to look at. This is oil production. So we're producing 12.4 million barrels a day of oil production. We dropped down with COVID. Um, partly that was because we, we actually shut in for the first time in, in U.S. shale history. We actually shut in these wells. Um, and then we turned them back because we they had nowhere to go. We turned them back online. Production starts coming up. And then we start drilling and activity starts coming back. And shale skeptics, and there's some, they're just all over the world. And they have the same kind of story of, oh, you'll just never recover production. And it can't happen. And you don't have enough acreage and not enough wells. Well, we're steadily growing production. Most of that steadily rises because the public operators simply have not come back as aggressively as the privates. But if you notice natural gas production, just on this axis, is um, at record high, all-time record high, 122 BCF a day. So um, I have, you know, when I tell folks of, you know, don't expect natural gas production to decline because it really hasn't, no matter what the prices were, which were not high, natural gas production just doesn't come off a cliff. Sure, we're gonna drop to natural gas rigs and folks won't be going crazy in the Haynesville, but these wells are 20,000 MCF a day that come on in Haynesville, each well. These are monsters. Um, and same for, for Marcellus. And we're drilling three mile long laterals. Like this stuff is easy to produce. We have a ton of it. Um, we can solve the, you, the global crises like in a heartbeat. Um, so we have a lot of it. And this, even if we drop these rigs in the Haynesville, it doesn't mean we solve the gas, the gas price problem because you can see the tight correlation between oil production and gas production. So much of this gas is associated gas that is coming along with, with permeable barrels. So as long as oil prices stay high, gas production is going to stay high with it because that gas comes with it. That gas is often the driver um, and is what is making these, you know, monster 3,000 barrel a day wells that you see in the Permian Basin. Again, the nerdy engineering stuff. Um, so OPEC production, a big just point here is that right now, Saudi Arabia, when I say the U.S. is the largest oil and gas producer by far, we're producing 12.4 million barrels per day. Saudi Arabia is producing 10.3 million barrels per day. Russia is hanging in there at 11 million barrels per day. Um, We've seen this number revised up over the course of 2022. Everyone basically said Russia started this war in Ukraine um, on February 24th of last year. Most people did not think that was going to happen. Um, even when it happened, people didn't think it was just going to miraculously end. That was likely. Um, when you build up that level of tanks, it was going to happen. Um, but you know, right after the war, they just thought, okay, well, production will drop. Well, this is where they make their money. So I didn't think production would drop, but production has been incredibly resilient in Russia. So Every, these numbers get revised up all the time. They held in at over 11 million barrels per day um, at the end of last year. And they're baking in. And it's interesting because Saudi Arabia has been extremely silent. And all this geopolitical stuff you're hearing with Russia and China, notice you haven't heard anything out of Saudi Arabia. Um, convenient. But uh, they're kind of taking a hit on production right now. So they've dropped their production. They pulled it back from 11 million barrels per day. Um, and you're looking at you're looking at forecasts of production for 2023, not even a million barrel day drop. And exports have been really resilient. Yes, they're not exporting as much crude to Europe, but that just the seaborne flows have just flowed to other countries, particularly India, particularly China. Um, in the beginning of the war, we had a lot of seaborne flows going to be a tanker to Italy, um, and it's massively discounted. So all these countries are basically saying, why not? And we've sort of incentivized that in a lot of ways because the price caps that we put on it are irrelevant given the discounts. 
So that Russian crude is flowing. And it's, it's the whole Russian story has been remarkably resilient. Um, if China's buying 2 million barrels a day of crude oil, China's fund, you know, you get your trade with China is 12 million barrels or $12 million a day. It's, it's pretty huge. Um, U.S. is exporting 10 million barrels a day of, this is a refined product, crude oil and, um, and natural gas liquids. So I say, I show this because this is another point of the U.S. is the, a major oil and gas powerhouse. I mean, we are massive exporters. So 10 million barrels a day, that's what Saudi Arabia does on a good day. Um, so we're right in line with Saudi for exports. We are exporting uh, 4 million barrels a day of crude oil and a couple million barrels a day of diesel, about a million barrels a day of gasoline. Um, and a couple million barrels a day of natural gas liquids. That's like your propane and stuff, um, which is really big for the world. Now, this is to sort of put in context these energy transition stuff a little bit. Is because you hear a lot of we're transitioning, um, and you hear a lot of people in the industry, including you know Liberty Energy and Chris Wright, will say this. You know, we are not actually because we haven't actually. Um, this is your coal consumption in the world. The purple is uh, coal production. The uh, orange is coal consumption. So you can see that. That kind of has flatlined, but it's gone up actually after COVID in 2021. And that's natural gas consumption and production. That's again, 400 BCF a day globally as of 2021. If we're producing 122 BCF a day, we are um, in a really, really good position. And that's partly why our economy has typically favors a little better in these crises. Now, oil production consumption, same story. Um, you know, lots of folks want to talk about this is coming off a cliff, certainly a massive dive in consumption during COVID um, because we, if people weren't driving, we shut down the world, but we're on a steady trajectory. And yeah, maybe we plateau or flatline around 100 million barrels per day, but plateauing and flatlining is very, very different than radically dropping your consumption of crude oil. And that's really, really important because it's hard for people to understand, especially when you have lots of forecasts that come out that show that dramatic decline. And the economic impact of that drop alone was, was was COVID, was this massive thing that required $27 trillion of, of ridiculous stimulus. So it's just not feasible that that's going to happen again. I know people will tell you it is, but it's not. Um, so oil and gas rigs, we don't have to spend time on this. The point is that uh, we talked about oil production, it was gonna be maintained. Oil and gas rigs have sort of both flatlined. We'll see gas rigs drop. Well, that could be beneficial if you're following earnings at all and listening to operators, which you should be. Um, the operators are telling you that, you know, they've had pretty high inflation. And one thing that could be disinflationary for um, oil and gas operators is the fact that if we're dropping gas rates, we're going to have more availability and probably less tightness. The other side of this is that if we start seeing unemployment rise in the U.S., which we are going to see, um, it will also help the oil and gas sector because they will be jobs. The oil and gas industry is probably going to still be hiring where the rest of the economy might be backsliding. And um, that's good for the oil industry because it means that they're high, they have uh, people to hire and it's also good for people because there is a segment that's still hiring. Um, this is our LNG exports and prices. Looks really messy. Big takeaway is this orange line is your liquefied natural gas exports. So when the world's clamoring for this, all this natural gas, um, we are, you can see our exports increase. That price, that green line is the corresponding price. Um, so we, we were, of course, you know, people are getting really excited. They're producing all this gas because if you're exporting this, you are getting 14 to 16 in MCF, which is obviously a lot more than the two bucks right now. Or if you're in the Marcellus, you're probably getting, you know, a buck and change if that today. Um, so it's a big, big story. And the ability to, um, you know, right now, Appalachia or the Marcellus is, is constrained. They're at 35 BCF a day of production. They cannot produce anymore because they can't, there is not a pipeline out of, out of the Appalachian Basin. Um, we need a 
pipelines have to be built in order to help the rest of the world, but also to help the U.S. from prices spiking. And in um, the Northeast, where the Marcellus sits, we have a big problem where we're actually burning diesel in power plants, not coal, not natural gas, but diesel and oil, um, which is much dirtier than, and, and you could argue much dirtier than coal, even much dirtier than natural gas because they haven't built a pipeline. Really, really serious. And that stuff drives up oil prices and causes all kinds of issues. Um, our LNG, we have about 14 BCF a day capacity right now that's going to ramp up, but 14 BCF a day, we're not exporting that right now because of the Freeport facility. We had a, an outage there, um, and that impacted natural gas because in addition to warmer winter, warmer winter in the U.S., warmer winter abroad, having a couple BCF a day knocked off with the Freeport facility, um, it starts really adding up. Now, globally, this is important to recognize is that it's a pretty nascent new market the global LNG market. And the reason is, is because it's hard to do this. Um, the reason coal is something that you can't really poo-poo is because it is energy security. And even if you don't want it, the rest of the world wants it because you don't have to put it in a pipe. You can put it on a truck. You can put it on a barge and put it, stack it up next to your coal mine you, your, or your power plant. You may never even use it, but it is, boy, it is an energy security thing you want in your back pocket um, because liquefied natural gas while it's great and it is cleaner uh, from emission sample from a lot of things, it is, um, you have to compress it, you have to pipe it. I mean, we have to pipe natural gas. We can't just put it in a truck. And so this is the liquefied natural gas market over time. It's only 50 BCF a day as of 2021. Obviously that's increased in 2022. China was taking 11 BCF a day. Um, I know people get really excited about that. If China was intent on greening and cleaning up their, their country, they would be consuming way, way more natural gas but they're not because they don't have the natural gas. And so they burn coal because they have lots of coal. 11 BCF a day, China actually only consumes less than 40 BCF a day of natural gas. And they're a pretty bad, big country. Um, so you can see it's, it's still a new market. It's still growing. And there's a lot of, it's not like Brent or WTI or, or a very transparent liquid fluid market. Um, so this is why we have ebbs and flows and price spikes and everything with it. So US shale, we went through this. The point I want to say about uh, production and prices is that we've historically produced a lot of oil with much lower prices. So yes, the industry is hell bent on share buybacks and giving returns and everybody making money. And that's all great if you're public, but our ability to produce more, we can do it at a lower price point and we have done it. Now we've earned a lot of cash and we spent money poorly, but the industry, kind of, we know what we're doing. We know the rock pretty well. Um, inflation is hard, but you can see when the rig, sort, rig count sort of flatlines, these operators are, are staying within reason. And we basically historically, this was sort of flatlined. We had $44 oil. We had $88 oil with the first sort of big part of the show revolution beginning. And then from 2014 to 2021, we averaged $58 oil. Now, that's not amazing for the oil and gas industry, but it is really, really good for the U.S. consumer. It's really good for the global consumer. And um, we were the swing producer. I mean, we added so much production since 2008. It was game-changing for the entire world, not just ourselves. And it's a super, super serious issue to appreciate how much we produce and what that means from a power dynamic standpoint in a world where everybody's talking about going to wind and solar um, and, going, and having wars in Russia um, and China funding it and potentially going to war with China. So uh, average lateral length, we made some really big gains over the course of 2022, and we do this every time. Every time the industry goes through a um, you know, pitfall or a downturn, they get better. 
Um, and so it's just like any tech business or anything, we typically get better in this business. And COVID definitely was one of those things where you get to know the rock a little bit better. Even if you do things a little bit better incrementally, these efficiencies add up. Um, ladder links are, are one of those stories that everybody has pushed ladder links pretty far. So we're looking at you know, 11,000 feet on average in the Permia Basin. Um, we have consistently a lot of operators, Pioneer Natural Resources, just talking about an earnings call. They have a thousand wells that they're going to be drilling three mile long laterals. And that's really important because if you think back just a handful of years ago, folks were pretty hesitant to drill three mile long laterals because they were hesitant to complete the end of those laterals. And will they get all that production at the end of that, of that toe of the well? And there was a lot of people were anxious about that. And now you just, you have a downturn and you need to do it and you just do it, which that always happens. Um, and it turns out pretty well. And we barely started in that. So I would say the ability to produce more from the toe of those wells is probably going to increase, but we're not seeing massive diminishing marginal returns, which is really exciting. This is public and private rigs. Um, so public is the orange and private is purple. And the big takeaway with this is just, just look visually where these operators are at. Your private operators are outside the boundaries. Your, your public operators have poured up in all these major shale basins. And so it tells you a big story. This has happened over the entire court, 2020 to, 20 to now. The private operators are pushing the envelope of where they're drilling. And it's a really cool story because the, uh, the concept that we're running out of acreage, we're running out of wells, and we don't know the acreage. And yeah, that might be the case for your court up publics, but the other privates have come out and they don't need the same returns. They need good returns because they won't get money from investors, but they do not need the same returns as their public peers. And with production, we can see overwhelmingly they haven't done that poorly. They've done actually pretty well. And so it, it really is game changing as something I don't think well appreciated by the U.S. or the global market that we probably have more rock than people thought um, in terms of we're, we're pushing and expanding the envelope. Not, not saying the wells are just as good or there's not resistance or that you know, we won't have pushback. Plus, the high natural gas prices had a lot to do with it because, again, condensate, you know, NGLs, natural gas, all that was really sexy. So you are willing to go for a gasier well in Wyoming or, um, you know, well cap for gas wells, which we never even heard of you know, a few years ago, you were willing to do that last year. So just seeing this visually, and this is really serious because the market, in terms of your private equity players, your stock market, everyone told you that the day of the private operators was done. Pre-COVID in 2019, if you were to go to a conference or you were in this business, largely people would say, you know, private equity is, um, there's just not going to be money flowing into private equity and the private operators are going to be done. That has not held true. And in fact, was completely the opposite during COVID because guess what happened? Public operators were scared. Um, I won't use the word, they, they were very scared, so they weren't going to do anything. And then you had all the coat, you had um, ESG pressures and climate change and everything. So then they were even more scared and they just sort of sat there for a while and the privates just went off to the races. So you have more private rigs running right now than you do public rigs. In the Permian, this just flipped sort of in September where now you have more privates than publics, but or more publics than privates. But you can see. This was the high in 2018 and they're well over those highs. So the shale space in the US is one you have to follow really, really, really closely to have the story correct. And I know I'm way over time, um, but just bear with me. We'll get into the Chinese stuff and then we'll wrap up. Um, okay, completions, WTI. This is all US completion. So all wells, horizontal, vertical, stacked up. So those are pub or publics in orange, privates in purple. That's all the US. You can see we have not come back to our, our pre-COVID highs here. Um, so it makes sense that production is not quite back where it was. These are W. These are oil prices in black. These are the corresponding rig caps. Um, so you can see, obviously, privates respond well to oil prices, and we can see here 
Credits have nearly come back to their completions. Publics have not. And this is really your ESG investor pressure story. This is where the public operators, if you're looking in the Rockies, like here in Colorado, where you haven't seen activity come up to levels it was before, it's because it was dominated by public operators and public operators simply have not come back to the table in the same speed. Um, Permian Basin is off to the races. They are basically where they were uh, pre-COVID, largely because of the privates who are completing more wells. They're bringing, these are wells brought onto production and producing um, than their public peers. And production, it's an amazing, amazing story that can't, I can't tell it enough of New Mexico production is 1.7 million barrels per day. That is two counties, two, two counties. I mean, think about that. This is more than some OPEC countries produce. So nearly 2 million barrels per day in two counties in New Mexico. A lot of that is federal aid as well. Pushing through it, these are private operators that were just, a lot of private operators here in Colorado, um, a couple of them that just drilled through the downturn, drilled through COVID, you know, added rigs and drilled and completed their wells uh, during COVID. The story of the what not to do and the sort of scary thing and the understanding Colorado as a microcosm is California production nearly declines every single month. Just production keeps going down and down and down. Um, Alaskan production does the same thing. And Colorado, we had a peak and then we dropped down largely because oil prices and everything, but a big component with, of that is, is the, uh, you know, the election in 2018. Um, Prop 112 was defeated, but then we had SB 181 come in and push through, shove through, and that has had a huge impact on the ability to get permits in Colorado. Um, and you just can't invest and drill clearly in Colorado without that. The productivity, um, and this is a major, this is all your shale basins in the U.S., all your oil shale basins in the U.S. all together. This is a normalized productivity curve for 10,000 foot laterals. And you can see 2022 is right in line, just under 2021. Now you could say, oh my gosh, those privates are drilling crappy wells and those longer laterals are just terrible. And all the naysayers would, you know, all these bad things. That did not prove out in the data. And then gas, holy crap. Uh, that your gas curve, which is in the last five years at the highest it's been, that's normalized again. That your gas curve in your oil plays, which means everybody's targeting natural gas. And also that helps with the drive. So your willingness as an operator, if you know you have a really good gas drive and you've got high gas prices, you're going to go after those wells and those reservoirs. So it's really cool for the nerdy reservoir engineer who you know, had a great play, but you know his boss didn't want him to go after it because there was too much gas. And last year was like, oh, let's go after it. Um, that's a story in the Permian. It's going to continue to be this way where you have, you know, ramping up oil production at 5.3 million barrels a day, and then 21 BCF a day of associated gas production. And that is why gas production is not going to come. Um, I'll just keep going. Okay. So we're going to, if you bear with me, hang out here. I promise you it'll be worth it. Um, we're going to start with Russia. We'll work into this energy transition. So we're a war, we're a year on into this war now. Um, and sort of backdrop of this is that we've had, you know, I, I talked to you about the high food and high uh, fertilizer prices, all that sort of the inflation, the war and everything has had a huge impact on the economy. So we have lots of parts of the economy, um, especially emerging markets, especially Africa um, and, and Asia and, um, and the Middle East that are being really impacted. And that's something really just keeps out in your back of your mind of, of we're not the only economy that is, is feeling the pains of this and we are doing Really, really well because we don't have a lot of these emerging market problems. But this is your fertilizer, your produce, your um, fertilizer price index, and that is your food price index. So you can see just up and to the right. So big, big problems, higher than it was in 2008, um, and it really needs to come down in order for us to stop being worried about this. Now, a year on to this war in Ukraine, 
This was the map on February 24th. I spent stayed up all night watching this. It was pretty crazy. Um, so that was the map of what it looked like. This is the map one year later. Um, and it's just, there really is no end in sight. And you can stare at this and, and really just think about the consequences of that. Is that, you know, Russia has carved off a chunk of eastern Ukraine. You know, China has come out with a peace plan that no one's going to go for. But the problem with this is that you have to, we're in a tricky situation where people have to have uncomfortable conversations about how much this costs and how long countries are going to fund it. Um, because there has to be, is there, what, what's the end game? And then you have the reconstruction efforts and you can't start those reconstruction efforts until you have an end game. And so if you continue to have this war and, you know, I thought this a year ago, but it should really get people to this point of saying, what does Putin want? And it seems like he absolutely wants this war and he's willing to continue it. And so the idea that we could end this anytime soon, he's willing to go in this with long haul. And if he gets funding from, if he gets funding, let alone ammunition from China, this could, is really going to get extended and it really could turn the tide of the war. The funding and the war fatigue side is really important um, because, you know, we didn't have enough money for all these things that we wanted to do before, let alone, I mean, it, it's expensive. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it. I, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying you have to look at the numbers because when you start hearing political rifts in the U.S. and we are hearing war fatigue already in Europe, and Europe hasn't spent nearly as much money as we have. Um, but the United States, you can see that's how much we've spent. And China is criticizing us for this because they're saying, hey, you know, look how much you're spending. You're, you know, you're contributing these war efforts. EU institutions have spent a fraction of what we've spent. And that red is the military piece. And that military piece is important because that's what is, um, that's the actual tanks and that's the actual ammunition. And that ammunition story is really important because it does come back to your power generation. You have to be able to produce this stuff. And I can tell you one country that has enough power generation with coal-fired power generation is China and they can produce ammunitions. Um, so we have to be thinking about, you know, power does a lot more than just uh, turn the lights on and allow you to go to school. It is what, it, it, it allows you to produce things, and some of those things are military weapons. Um, natural gas, the flows into, into, the, into Europe went through three main conduits. They went through Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 was built, but it never flowed. It goes through, it's, it basically doesn't go through Poland anymore, but it can. Um, and it goes through Ukraine and Turkey. We still have a little bit of flows going through Ukraine. I think that's pretty interesting in and of itself that those are still flowing. And we have a little bit of flows going through Turkey as well. But largely everything in Europe just cratered and came off a cliff. Now, before the pipelines were sabotaged, before Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, again, never flowed. It was a brand new pipeline before they were sabotaged, the, the flows dropped off. So Russia was saying, hey, we are willing to cut our flows. We're willing to take the economic pain of not sending you natural gas. We're willing to do that and show you that we have this power play. And the fact that Russia is not a superior economic superpower and was able to do this is your energy security lesson 101. Do not do this. Do not put yourself in a situation to where you're beholden to a single country. Um, and that is exactly what Europe did. So Europe, this is consumption, 55 BCF a day, and this is their production. This is, again, what not to do. You cannot keep consuming at these levels if you're not going to produce it yourself, because then you open up yourself to a massive energy security problem. 18 BCF a day was their exposure to Russia. 16 BCF a day via pipeline, and nearly 2 BCF a day via LNG. That is a horrible situation. It gave, it gave Putin every, every card he needed to play. He played them all at once, and we're here. Big problem. They've discounted their crude. Um, and now we have Europe, and this gets really, really messy and confusing because in all of this, we're talking about natural gas and energy security. 
everybody's going crazy about clean tech and clean tech is largely two things it is solar power and it is wind power um a little bit of battery but not really that's largely in your driving space so um this is ursula vonderland this is davos beginning of this year she says you know she wants to make europe this clean tech home um so you know pushing the clean tech story of, of they don't produce any of this they they install wind and solar but they do not make wind and solar that all comes from china and you got China saying, hey, we're going to peak our carbon emissions and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be great. They're not peaking their carbon emissions. They're nowhere even close. Um, so we just have this lack of real understanding of if this is about CO2 emissions, it's a load of horseshit um, because it's just not happening. And my apologies for those words, but it's, it's just not happening. Um, German electricity prices and UK electricity prices. These were both coming up. And you can see in September 2021, those were both starting to spike. That's way before the war in Ukraine. So what happened here was your big sort of energy, this was the starting point and it didn't help enable Putin to do what he wanted to do because it gave him an opening. Um, but what happened was we had a colder than a, a, a cold snap in, um, in China in the late winter. We had a cold snap in the spring of Europe in, this, in the beginning of 2021. And so no one really noticed it, but everybody's kind of hoarding gas in the beginning of 2021. We saw some issues in China. And then, um, and we had all these, no one was going, producing natural gas, especially in Europe, because prices were so low. There was a lot of maintenance going on. COVID was happening. They weren't sending people out to the rigs. Um, all kinds of stuff was going on. And for Europe, a lot of their storage of natural gas is actually in the field. It's actually the production platforms. Um, so if you drop your production and then you need it, you're in trouble. And what happened was they shoved, they actually accelerated a lot of wind and a lot of solar and a lot of renewables into the grid, which they did, that's their choice cost a lot of money, but the problem was when they needed power, they didn't have the natural gas or the coal-fired power generation, they had lost it. So then they, they when they need the natural gas, they have to go get it, and the prices begin to spike. And so your energy crisis started well before the war in Ukraine and then gave Putin sort of this opening and an acceleration of it. And now prices have really, really come down simply because we uh, the weather's been good and we have this natural gas. I, I'd be careful in just getting comfortable with this because, and I feel bad for them because we, we have to solve it. Um, Inflation, this is the other really big problem is that, and it folds into the war story of like, we haven't seen inflation levels in Germany like this. And they used to be really scared of this since, you know, World War II times and previously. Um, UK, we saw these in the 90s, but the sticky inflation, inflation came back in Germany and everybody thought because these energy prices were going down and inflation was going to go down too. And the problem is it's now, it's, it's within the labor sector. It's, it's within out the economy. It's particularly in food. And that's really scary because that means that people, they have to eat and they have to be able to heat their homes. Um, and that's a problem. Olaf Scholz, if I could criticize just one person in Europe the most, probably this man. Um, you know, he keeps saying like he came out at the end of last year, beginning of this year and said, hey, we're not, we're not going to recession. That's not true. The first quarter of this year, they dipped into negative territory. It's probably going to have another quarter. They're probably already in a technical recession. Um, and then he went to China, literally went to China with 12 CEOs and just said, hey, we're open for business. And he's, I mean, Germany is the single biggest country that led Europe into this big problem with Russia you know, with all this exposure to natural gas. And they get almost all of their renewables, all their solar and wind is coming from China. So the China piece of this is last week, if you follow this at all, very, very busy week on the China story. They came out with three things. I've never seen our media, Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal cover this the way they covered this. Um, Xinhua News is a Chinese news agency. I've never heard Bloomberg say, oh, this essay from Xinhua News. Never happened, but they did last week. So China wrote this essay on US hegemony, telling us how bad we are. 
um, and what a bad hegemonic superpower we are. Um, they put out this global security initiative concept paper on global security. This is something Xi Jinping dropped about a year ago, but they're really getting into it. And then they put out this position paper on the political settlement, settlement of the Ukraine crisis, just a 12 point little synopsis. So they're, they're stepping into this war effort and stepping into it. They've long been criticized that they haven't done more. They haven't been doing anything except literally trading with Russia and increasing their imports from Russia. Um, so, and they've, you know, basically nixed everything in the UN and all these security council stuff. So now they just come out with this peace plan and just say, hey, this will be great, we'll be fine. Um, but at the same time they do this, this is when our government comes, the US government comes out and says, hey, um, you can't be funding their, their war efforts and saying that they're already funding it. They, they, we've, the US government has come out and said, China is funding the war efforts in Ukraine, maybe not militarily, but otherwise, allowing their companies to help in the war efforts, so whatever that means. The point is Chinese imports from Russia are black, Chinese exports to Russia are in blue. You can see the trade has just went up like crazy pre-war and during the war. Um, so they are funding it. Um, this friendship that they had, which this state, this document was released a couple weeks before the war, um, it's extremely serious. It's absolutely worth a read. It's pretty short. Um, it's very good. And it basically just talks about a very tight friendship that they have. Um, International Energy Agency, this is your, and I'll, I'm sort of going to end with this stuff, is that this is your oil prices, your oil and gas demand per um, for International Energy Agency. So when you hear the IEA talk about net zero 2050 or you hear anyone talk about net zero 2050, this is kind of where, where they're actually at. And a lot of them are, are reflecting International Energy Agency. So the International Energy Agency is based out of Paris. Um, in 2020, they came out and they said that um, basically they were, they were going to put clean energy at the heart of the economic recovery, which was a pretty new thing for, for the IEA because that's, they weren't an advocacy organization. And then just recently they came out and said that energy clean tech is not the problem and that we need more clean tech and that would have been that would have solved this energy crisis or helped it. Um, so some pretty serious stuff there that, that really just flies in the face of reality because adding wind and solar into your grid would not have necessarily made this energy crisis go away um, and, and probably has exacerbated it. Your oil demand and oil prices. So the oil demand and net zero from the IEA, this is what it looks like. To go to net zero by 2050, you have to create your oil demand. It just probably isn't going to happen just from a pure economic standpoint. But it's an impossible situation because you have to go to, just in 2030, you have to go to 75 million barrels a day. So you have to drop consumption by 25%, which is an impossible feat in just a handful of years. Um, it is not going to happen. And it, you have to start having these real conversations of if it's not going to happen, then all this investment you're doing and all this stuff for EV and everything could be money spent um, that's never going to go anywhere and will this hurt your economy. Um, Petit Barol, which is really interesting because he was at Davos and he said, you know, my job is to get my hands dirty on this data. And I thought, well, you're not doing a very good job because the data, that's not the data. That's just, you know, what you think. Um, so he's clearly not looking at the same data the rest of us are. Um, BP has jumped into this story as well. Interestingly enough, so BP has a net zero. Interestingly enough, their 2030 is a little more shallow. They think we're only going to go to 85 million barrels a day, man. That would be extremely damning for the economy anyway. Um, but the point is that kind of helps. That's a narrative from an oil company that would say it's, it's going to be a little better. It's super, super hard for them. They're getting dinged. Their stock got smashed because they were too green because they actually made money. Their stock got smashed because you know, all, the, all the greenies didn't like them because they're producing oil. I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, but there's some serious implications to this. And if you look at BP's data, which is great to look at, there's a couple things. 
no matter what, in all these scenarios, OPEC share production grows. So it means we stop producing oil in democratic countries where we can actually control the emissions. We actually can make it cleaner. We can actually make sure it's, it's done by with human rights standards. And we give it to OPEC. So they, they win. You know, the Saudis win in all of this. Um, natural gas demand is super unclear. Either natural gas demand craters or it goes up, which that's problematic for just a business standpoint and just an economy and anyone. So it's either one or the other. And then no matter what, and IEA and BP and everyone say the same, is that wind and solar go up. Wind and solar just go, you know, exponential growth. Um, so a very messy, messy story here. And this is your actual power generation by fuel type. So oh, globally, totally. And this is where when people say we're not having energy transition, this is really what they mean. It's not just about oil and gas consumption. It's that this is your renewables. This is largely wind and solar. Solar. That's your capacity. Now your generation capacity. It doesn't mean, it means when the wind isn't blowing, you're not getting this. When the sun isn't shining, you're not getting this. But also hydro is the same way. If you don't have a, if you don't have enough rain that year, you're, you don't have enough hydropower, and then you rely on your gas and you rely on your coal. But the point is, is that it keeps going up because we're consuming more electricity. And um, that means that it's going to be very hard for those renewables to actually penetrate because they just don't, they cost a lot and they just don't have the same reliability. And you can't produce as much ammunitions and things like that with wind and solar. And that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's reality. We've lost a lot of primary production in the US. We have huge movements against coal and, and natural gas. So that's really serious just to be thinking about from, a, from an energy security standpoint and what's behind that and whether we should be doing that. All the oil companies jumped on the net zero bandwagon and agreed to net zero emissions and climate and all that stuff. Um, you know, they don't let their okay with scope one, scope two emissions. They're not okay with scope three emission, which is your end user emissions. It, this is really problematic um, just because it's not helpful in terms of the actual facts and, and dialogue of, of where we need to be going with the reality of the situation. Um, the real campaigners and the ones that you listen to, if you listen to the shareholder calls, um, you will hear entities like this who are calling for Exxon and Chevron to completely you know, divest that oil and gas, meaning that only 23% of their CapEx can actually go to oil and gas production. That's just not going to make the company any money. That doesn't make any sense. But this is this is the push. And so when we talk about these movements and we talk about this investor pressure and everything, this is what we're talking about. And so when you're on this net zero bandwagon or you're on these, you know, you're propelling this stuff, this is what you're propelling. Um, this is Chinese power generation. So this is just a nice, pretty heat map. Chinese power generation is 8,500 terawatt hours. It is largely coal. There are renewables, absolutely. They're one of the few countries in the world that add renewables and coal together because they know that you, when the renewables aren't working, you have coal to back it up. And um, when the renewables aren't working, you're not using as much coal. So it actually works out. Um, coal production is just off to the races. They're 400 million uh, tons. Interestingly enough, they're actually they're actually importing a lot, um, and I think they're stockpiling, which is a serious thing in and of itself. Um, just be watching and paying attention to. This just came out yesterday, um, and Sunday night and yesterday, the coal-fired power plants that they're adding, and this is why it's so important to think about everybody reducing their coal-fired power generation. For the coal-fired power plants that they're adding, it's two new coal-fired power plants a week in 2022. Um, so they're adding a lot of power generation capacity, probably inefficiently, but also to produce stuff. Really, really important. And it does mean that as we're pulling them off, it, it really is all for naught. And so um, we're sort of exporting our, our, our ability to produce things uh, to China. And that has serious implications for these tensions. Um, this article said they have enough new coal-fired power plants to power the UK. It is actually true. And it's funny because China, the Global Times came out and, and ripped on this and, and said, 
you know, stop talking about the China coal threat. You know, this is just irrelevant, um, which, you know, if like we can produce, we, we it's okay. And, and then they put all this green stuff here, which is, so if you follow global science, it, their cartoons are just hilarious. Um, they're also criticizing J Japan now for nuclear. So if you're pro-green, you probably should be pro-nuclear. Um, so this stuff is really just to see this of how, um, it, it really tells you that it's so, it's so dynamic, that energy security is so linked to geopolitical relevance, especially for China. And so if they're ripping on Japan for the nuclear, that doesn't hurt them from an energy standpoint, but it does hurt them if they're trying to hurt other countries and from an energy security standpoint. Um, this is their coal, 200 uh, coal-fired power plants in construction, over 3,000 operating, over 100 an ounce, over 100 per minute. It just keeps going on and on. Um, and when you look at the power generation, this is the UK, just reflecting that article, 350 terawatt hours. So they have declined their electricity output. And that's really scary because their ability to produce things has declined with that. And it usually means that your economy is declining too. So I know people get excited about this, but you have to be very careful of what it means when you're actually declining your electricity output. What are the long-term implications for that? They've increased these renewables massively. This puts grid stability at a huge risk. That's why you have price spikes. Um, this is Russia and Russia has continued to increase. The fact that you have a lesser economic power that has, you know, 1,000, 1,100 terawatt hours and you have 350, this is a problem because they can produce stuff. They can produce ammunition. They can do stuff. This is stuff that people didn't want to have to think about like war, and now we have to. Um, if you put the West together, this is the U.S. and Europe combined, we have flatlined in our electricity output or generation capacity, and this is China, just off to the races, and um, that's really serious because a lot of that is coal, and they need that to produce the, the heavy stuff, particularly all the wind and all the solar and all the batteries that we're all buying and feeling good about, they're making. And they have the entire value chains and processing capacity um, for all this stuff. So really, really serious in and of itself, just because even if you did this, you're, you're completely exposed to that supply chain. Not that you should do this because the efficiency of wind and solar is so poor um, and so costly, but you're all buying from China. And I will tell you that the actual solar power, sometimes when you buy these solar panels from China, and almost all of them come from China, um, they last one to two years. They can last 15 years. But if they last one to two years, you're, you've got to replace this stuff. And it's probably not that efficient to begin with. So serious implications there. A lot of this comes from the province of Xinjiang. This is forced labor. This is human rights. This is um, internment camps. This is concentration camps. This is a massive and growing problem and will continue to be. And so much of their auto manufacturing and so much of their intensive extractive industries are in the province of Zhejiang, um, and that's because nobody knows what's going on there, not even people within the country. So it, there's a big black box around it, and that's very convenient if you want to produce stuff. And I would argue that probably not just solar wind, probably weapons and things like that and anything else you want to produce uh, without anyone looking. And one country who has fared really, really well during this war is that solar panel exports increased 86% from China to Europe during the course of this war. Um, so with that, I am going to close. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hold on questions, I think. Uh, do you have time? Yeah, I have time. Well, let's do a couple in the room if you have some. Um, and then uh, we, I don't know how many people we still have online, but um, do you want to, you guys have questions? Anyone in the room? Yeah, go for it. You can handle it. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I think are really important when it comes to talking about oil prices and energy in general is the uh, sanctions that are been placed by the U.S. on other countries. And every time I look at the news, it's always 
blaming Russia for affecting the oil prices, but never talking about the sanctions and how important to hear your sanctions. Sanctions we see on countries like Venezuela, Iran, where they can't produce one barrel of oil. And if they do produce one barrel of oil, we see their tankers being uh, hijacked or their refineries being hit by a missile, like we saw a month ago in, I believe, five refineries or five buildings. One of them is a refinery. I'll leave it to you. Uh, it's a fantastic question and, and a very good point. So sanctions, and I would say the other big component to oil prices that I didn't have time to go into is the refining side. The fact that we just lost a lot of refining capacity in the U.S. and globally is that refined product like diesel is extremely expensive uh, because we just don't have enough refining capacity at the moment. And so we increase these prices. So that's a component. Um, sanctions that you know started a lot of sanctions under the Obama administration um, under and then the Trump administration on Iran, on Venezuela, I think we're... There's talk about trying to lift those on Venezuela. We're hearing companies within there trying to do that. Um, but on Iran in particular, yes, we are sanctioning them. China is for, China's getting about 2 million barrels a day, probably from Iran. So China has been consuming that regardless of sanctions for over the course of a couple of years. And that has you know, kept Iran afloat to a large extent. So they bypass that as they usually bypass most sanctions. So in many ways, the, our ability, the only reason we were able to sanction Iran and Venezuela originally was because we were increasing output and we were adding global supplies to the market and it enabled us, again, a huge geopolitical lever to enable that. If we're reducing output or we're losing production around the world, world ability sanction is, is restricted. And we sort of saw that with these Russian sanctions because we did a lot of sanctioning we have done globally on Russia's economy, on oligarchs, on everything. The economy's proved much more resilient than expected. And that's partly because I think people don't understand it's a pretty simple economy. Um, yes, it's very petro-driven, but it has a very, they have a very, very low break-even price for oil. And um, they just are not a robust economy. So they're able to sort of weather stuff a little bit better than a lot of people expected. And these sanctions on Russia, Unfortunately for the world, the way they wanted to do, they wanted to hurt them the most, but they also wanted to increase, keep the output on the, on, so no one wants to talk about that, on, that, that piece is like, hey, we want to sanction you, we want to hurt you, but we need you, the oil to keep flowing around the world because otherwise oil prices are going to go up. So a lot of oil price, oil prices right now is that geopolitical risk premium that's baked in. We still have the production moving and flowing, but yes, Russia could, Russia could screw us all tomorrow and just say, we're taking a couple million barrels a day off and prices would spike. And that may be something that Russia does. They they did this with gas, and I would wager they're holding the oil card in their back pocket to say we, we could be doing this. Um, but the sanctions on, on Venezuela, yes, are when we sanction countries and we limit the ability for this oil to get produced, you know, that has an impact. Usually other countries, uh, you know, India, China, find a way to buy it because they just don't you apply to the same rules. And I think it was really clear that, um, you know, China banked on this administration not penalizing them or penalizing Iran. So they were willing to increase their imports from, from Iran. And that kept a lot of barrels free flowing around the world. But also the, the price things that, that you're put on Russia, they were pretty irrelevant because as you saw the discounts for Russian crude oil, Russia is already discounting their barrels way below, you know, 30, 30 bucks below the market. So they have an, folks have an incentive to take it. And it's getting harder. I mean, their countries, just the way it flows, how it moves, it's getting harder, but it's still moving. Um, and that's why I say, you know, we often don't, this industry is, this industry, all are exceptionally resilient. When you push hard, enough hard, they, they, they find a way to respond to it. And, and oil production globally tends to be that way. Yep. Um, I just have like a general question about Europeans and like geopolitics as a whole. 
we're sanctioning Venezuela and Iran in multiple countries. We're supporting Ukraine against Russia. But I think the general question is just why are we doing that when tariffs are going to inevitably make consumer prices higher for Americans? And we don't, we're not Ukraine. Why do we care about all this stuff in general? And why do we care about Iran when we're in a completely other hemisphere? And not allowing them to export makes our own goods more expensive for consumers. Well, so firstly, I think the, as the answer to his question is that we, we actually haven't prevented their ability to export. So that may be the said intention. Um, and there also may be a said reality, knowing reality that they're going to export it anyway. Um, and then you have to enforce that. So we, there are previous administrations that didn't enforce, you know, if you're doing business, not a group, but if you're doing business with Iran, you know, you could get in trouble or we're not. Um, there's more implications now for, for Europe for, obviously, they haven't in, Europe has an incentive to sanction Russia because the war is on their border. I mean, it's right there. And so if it goes, you know, if it goes into Ukraine and it hits everyone, then we're talking Poland and Estonia and Latvia and all these countries. So that's pretty serious. Having a modern day war in a democratic country, even with Ukraine, maybe not have been the most robust, you know, um, uncorrupt country in the world is Eastern Europe. And that's a reality. Um, but it was still a democratic country and, and people lived a pretty peaceful life. And now there's an ongoing war in that country. Um, so that's why that's why Europe is sanctioning them. Um, what we are participating in that is obviously because uh, we have, I mean, there's a number, a number of different reasons, but um, you can't really talk about democracy and being bastions of democracy if you're not willing to support that. Now, it doesn't mean we are, can't get ourselves into trouble with how long does that go and, and is the money going, you know, when you're putting that much money into any country in any war, it can go to lots of different places and it can, you know, you, Tracking it is really difficult. All kinds of those things have huge implications. Uh, but in general, um, that's be, you can't really, this is a World War II-esque situation where you have, um, you know, access and allies. And um, I think as, you know, I'm, I'm critical of, of all many, you know, politicians and administrations, but I would say that um, you're, the ability for us to sanction Ukraine or sanction Russia and help Ukraine is, um, you have to look at this as this could be a pawn move in a much wider war game. Um, and the fact that Putin has stayed this for uh, over a year suggests that it looks like more of a pawn move than just a, this isn't checkmate. Now, they may have thought it was, but if this gets extended and China gets into it, now we're talking Taiwan, this is a very serious, serious thing. Um, and I don't know if they, as in Western countries, want to be on the wrong side of history saying, hey, it's not a big deal, it's not us. Yeah, I guess the follow-up to that would be, um, sure, Ukraine is a democracy, but they're not a NATO country. And if Russia were to invade Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, or Poland, any Baltic or Eastern European NATO country would instantly be World War III and nukes would be flying. So it doesn't matter anyways, because everyone would be flown to out of existence. So it doesn't matter how many conventional troops die in Ukraine because nukes are nukes. So I guess that's like the general point to all this is it doesn't really make sense that we're saying, oh, this is step one. When if they ever go to step two, it, step one never mattered to begin with. You know, you can debate that all day long, um, and nukes are often deterrent. So even if Russia says they're going to use them, they're probably not going to use them because that means that you say that, and they have Dmitry Medvedev coming out and saying that. They're clearly playing all their cards. There's a lot of questions on who's actually running the show in Russia, what's actually going on, how much hardliners are pushing Putin, what's actually going on there. You see a ton of people dying um, in terms of suicides and just people dying. On, so a lot of stuff going on there. Um, 
I, you know, I can, you can, you can play devil's advocate and go both sides of the fence of, of what's going on, but there, that's why I say the, the talk about how much money is being spent and what's the end game and how do you actually solve it? It's uncomfortable, but it's, it's a reality because if, if Europe gets war fatigue and they're not willing to spend on this, that's right there. Um, but that's also huge ammunition, like I said, for Russia to say, if Russia says, uh, we're going to turn off the taps for a few million barrels a day of crude oil, that is a massive pain. And, um, and yeah, then you're, then you're, telling everybody to ramp up production and you're reducing sanctions on other countries and you're not going to stop your war or so because then you're you're act actively at war. So this is uh, this is risk. This is a real like risk board game geopolitics. This is one on one of like there's a lot of moving parts here. So it may sound simplistic of it's not our problem. We just don't do it. But um, if you look back in history, it's usually not the case. Um, it, uh, it, it expands and it goes beyond borders. So um, how we enter, how we don't enter, all those things. But the, if it if it propels or continues to go on, that we've already felt the economic implications from um, just from reduced output of natural gas, fertilizer, and food. We fe we're feeling that we're just in a better position because we produce a lot of ourselves. All right, I might uh, call it at that point, Tricia. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. And um, can we give people online? I've been asking your contact details is that okay yeah okay so you can reach out to uh trisha if you didn't notice that that is a incredible uh tour of the world in an hour and five minutes so i encourage you to think about it a little bit and uh, thanks for being here